If you enjoy music's greatest mysteries, you're going to love Dan Rather's The Big Interview. That guy really digs into the truth. Check out his podcast sometime. Sometimes crazy tales are just that. Sheer craziness without authenticity. But what happens when the bizarre is overcome by shreds of truth? On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, we explore the legend of backmasking and its connection to the occult. People were telling us, do not listen to sticks because they're evil, they're devil worshippers. Then, Elvis was the king, but was he also an undercover secret agent? And finally, is Aerosmith the luckiest band in the world? For as long as there's been music, Satan himself has been a fan. From the controversial Devil's Note of the Middle Ages to Robert Johnson's Crossroads, the devil has been dancing for decades. In the modern era, the music of Dylan, the Stones, and the Beatles was supposedly afflicted by hidden messages. These took the form of backmasking, the term applied to the simple act of playing lyrics in reverse. I think part of that appeal it has to do with like teenage boys and the product of a vinyl record. The physical object that you could actually manipulate. When you learn that you can move that turntable and it starts to sound weird, get that record and just spin it till you heard it. You'd find the right speed and you'd be going, damn it, it did say that. By the mid 70s, this ideology has taken on a life of its own. But how much of this is legend or just time-honored lore? It's not only possible, it happens on a regular basis that you'll hear their messages. Demons deliver messages in all forms of electronic devices. Now, what is the purpose for backward speech? This is something that most people don't really understand. In my work, demons spoke backwards because they didn't want me to understand them at the time. As radical as it seems, backmasking takes off in the 70s to the point where witch hunts against popular music take over. But why? For that, it's time to go back to the drug culture of peace and love. It was born out of the flower power movement. In the late 60s, what we now call classic rock starts to get more excessive. Bands are writing songs about hobbits, wizards, and, and warlocks. All of a sudden, you end up with these crazy concepts, and some people thought that they were involved in devil worship. The more you play with a, a cult, the more you're inviting this stuff in. It is feasible that demons will affect you and have you say something or write something a certain way because they're opportunistic and they'll do everything they can. I think the reason people were so obsessed with the devil's music is really because in the 70s and 80s, there were references to the devil, to Aleister Crowley, you know, the Satan worshiper in their songs. Aleister Crowley, the occultist, he had a magic book and he encouraged magicians to do things backwards, walk backwards, speak backwards, think backwards, and listen to the phonograph backwards. So some would say that Aleister Crowley is the beginning or the seed planted for backmasking. Not only do lyrics get darker, but musicians start using experimental techniques in the studio to enhance the experience. 
Unwittingly, the controversy over backmasking originates with the biggest band in the universe. The Beatles used backward masking a lot. They used it in many, many songs. Rain was the first song, and then Revolution Number no. 9. Never guessing that it would help start the rumor that Paul was dead. At the end of the White Album track, I'm So Tired, John Lennon's mumbling played in reverse reveals a startling message. If you play it backwards, you hear someone saying Paul is dead forwards. The Beatles start, you know, sort of, you know, manipulating sounds and it gets a little eerie and scary there. Black Sabbath shows up out of nowhere playing this like demonic, you know, British blues. And then later down the line, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin buys Aleister Crowley's castle, and we just think that we're being inundated with Satan at this point. Page's purchase of the castle in Scotland reinforces Led Zeppelin's rabid interest in Crowley and his musings. The band allegedly adds satanic references in their music, specifically on the album Zoso. So it's not a surprise when they're associated with back masks on the seminal hit Stairway to Heaven. Led Zeppelin and Stairway to Heaven, it's supposed to say, here's to my sweet Satan and 666. Stairway to Heaven is sort of based out of the main vocal, so it's not anything that is sort of hidden. They would have had to have figured out what things would sound like backwards as they were writing the lyric. While Led Zeppelin denies accusations that they're intentionally adding backward messages, the phenomenon draws the attention of religious leaders, and no artist is off limits. Religious folks jumped on the whole back-masking bandwagon. Suddenly, we were drawn into it. We were being accused of putting these satanic messages backwards on our records. Coming up on Music's Greatest Mysteries, the unintended fallout of backmasking leads to the indictment of the prog rock band Styx. People were telling us, do not listen to Styx because they're evil, they're devil worshipers. It kind of got out of hand. And later, what's the real story behind Elvis's secret meeting with Nixon? How many people could have gone to the White House and said, I'm going to become an agent. Starting in the late 1960s, music fans begin hearing hidden messages on records by the way of backmasking. And by the early 80s, it's caught the attention of religious zealots. So people actually believe that we're inserting secret messages when you play a record backwards that is actually messages from Satan himself. In January of 1982, the Trinity Broadcasting Network drives the fervor even further by airing a program claiming satanic messages are hidden in Zeppelin's hit tune, Stairway to Heaven. All right, let's go ahead and start. <laughs> Okay. I live with Satan. How many in the audience heard that? Religious folks were convinced that if their children listened to Stairway to Heaven, 
that they would somehow subliminally be programmed to like do Satan's work. Now seemingly everyone's music, from Queen to ELO to Styx, is on a path to hell. Styx were successful for years from their first hit Lady and all of those tracks Come Sail Away to Babe. They were never considered a controversial group. But suddenly we were drawn into it. I guess it was Snowblind, yeah. At first we thought, well, it's just as ridiculous. But it started going around and it became, you know, kind of national news that Styx was doing this. And they, you hear what it said, man? Said, oh, Satan, move in our voices. People were telling us that their preachers were telling them, do not listen to Styx because they're evil, they're devil worshipers. The record company, you know, and A&M was, they were fine with it, they loved it. They said, everyone's going out and buying your album now. So now someone wants to be able to prove that this is actually happening, and the only way to do that is to then buy the record to check for yourself. That was someone's genius, okay? Styx capitalizes on the controversy by intentionally adding a backwards message to their follow-up concept album, Kilroy Was Here. We decided on the Kilroy albums, let's, let's do actual backwards message. In the song Heavy Metal Poisoning, the words rock and roll is evil was specifically spoken backwards. We were just messing with people. We're all good Catholic boys, the rest of the band. I was I'm from Alabama. I was raised up in the Baptist church. If we wanted to be Satan worshipers, where would we go? Where's the, new, where's the meeting? I don't, I don't know where to go. While Styx's use of backmasking was intended as satire, the downfall of the vinyl format made the hunt for hidden messages less appealing. But there are still those who believe the devil will always find his way into our music. Elvis Presley, the one and only, the king. We all know about his journey from the mudlands of Mississippi to worldwide fame, as well as his untimely death at age 42. But what about his relationship with one of America's most controversial presidents, Richard Nixon? As the 60s burn into the 70s, the Vietnam War rages, the inner cities sizzle, and the hippie drug culture infiltrates pop music. Elvis Presley's it factor falters. Elvis saw that change. There's no question that he felt being forgotten and being dismissed. Elvis is a Memphis boy. I don't believe that the culture with LSD and psychedelic drugs was probably Elvis's bag. Elvis was anti-counterculture. He saw it as a threat, I think, to his music, to his old-fashioned Southern manners. And even though he was on many, many drugs, he was anti-drug, you know? If they weren't prescribed, they were hippie drugs. He became kind of fixated on this right-wing politics as represented by, by Richard Nixon. Nixon was the old guard. He was a very conservative guy. And Elvis, he got this kind of obsession with him. Seemingly unconcerned by his own drug use, Elvis becomes so obsessed over the drug situation, he seeks a way to solve it himself. In the middle of the night, he calls Jerry Schilling, a member of his entourage, to set up a meeting 
with none other than the President of the United States. But what is his real intention? Elvis goes, Jerry, I got a, a plane waiting for you. You're gonna meet me in DC. Jerry's like, what are we doing? He's like, I wanna, I wanna meet with the president. And Jerry's like, do you have like a meeting with the president? You can't just go meet with the president. He's like, well, I'm gonna meet with the president. Elvis Presley says, I'm going to DC. I'm gonna see the president. I'm gonna write a little manifesto on the way and show up and just deliver it. That is purely an Elvis Presley maneuver. Nobody else would have had the gumption to do something just so completely wild and then have it actually happen. Next on Music's Greatest Mysteries, the real story behind Elvis's meeting at the White House. He wanted to be in the DEA. He wanted to help Nixon. And later, a look at Aerosmith's Nine Lives. Aerosmith seemed to just be able to dodge tragedy. In the 70s, as Elvis's celebrity status falls, his prescription drug habit rises. Out of step with the current culture, Presley gravitates towards the law and order policies of the Nixon administration, which leads him to the White House on December 21st, 1970. The story is unbelievable. That meeting wasn't planned. They just drove up to the White House, got to that gate, and he's just like, I want to see, you know, Mr. Nixon. And they're like, what's going on? And he's like, it's Elvis. Just tell him it's Elvis. There was Elvis standing in the White House with his velvet suit on and his low-cut shirt and his gold and diamond belt buckle. Richard Nixon looked at him and said, that's quite a getup you got there, boy. And Elvis Presley said, you have your show, Mr. President, and I have mine. Elvis basically crashed his way into the White House and started talking about law and order. He was, was fairly incoherent because he was pretty stoned. Well, he was doing an enormous amount of drugs, and his behavior got more and more erratic and strange. And then he starts going through President Nixon's desk, just opening up drawers, like, what you got here? I like this pen, putting it in his pocket. I think Nixon recognized that Elvis was not playing with a full deck. But the drug-addled king has a clear agenda, and it has everything to do with other people's drugs. He wanted Richard Nixon to give him this job where he could be a drug czar of sorts and use his celebrity to really infiltrate the hippies. Saying, I want to be your minion, President Nixon. Use me, use my ability to save the youth of America from the ravages of drugs. And uh, it was ironic because Elvis was always high. It wasn't as if this was a sober man doing this. I don't think that he thought the drugs he was taking were illegal drugs. He wasn't snorting coke and he wasn't shooting heroin or anything like that. They were prescription drugs. So he thought he was fine. They, the doctor gave it to him. Nixon awards Elvis a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. And to commemorate the occasion, takes one of the most famous photos in music history. 
But is this merely another celebrity photo op or something else? I think he wanted to be in the DEA. I think he wanted to help Nixon. There's no truth whatsoever that I know of that Nixon ever entertained it as anything real. Elvis believed that, you know, he deserved that badge and he could live above and beyond the law. So he can carry guns anywhere he wants, takes drugs anywhere he wants. How many people could have gone to the White House and said, I'm gonna go to the President of the United States and I'm gonna become an agent? And they created a position for him to be an agent at large to give him this badge. So Elvis Presley would have been a perfect spy because he's Elvis Presley. He could have gotten away with anything. In 1974, Nixon resigns in the wake of the Watergate scandal. Three years later, Elvis shockingly dies of a drug-induced heart attack, forever sealing the mystery of what really happened in that 1970 meeting. A 50-year history, 150 million albums sold, four Grammys, all add up to a remarkable legacy for Aerosmith, one of the greatest American rock bands. But how close does all of it come to a crashing halt? Aerosmith has an album called Nine Lives, and never has there been a more appropriate name for an album to be paired up with a band. By 1977, Aerosmith's string of platinum records has them transcending the music globe. But while on tour, a terrible twist of fate saves them from certain tragedy. Aerosmith is on tour, and they are offered a plane, a private plane. The story goes, one of the dude's family members w flew planes. And they looked at it and they said, you're not getting on that. And that was the plane that Leonard Skinner crashed in. It's true. Aerosmith did pass on that plane. Aerosmith did not want our airplane, and I don't blame them. It was a hunk of junk. So imagine that. What if, what if Aerosmith had been on that plane? Things would be a lot different. After dodging fate by not getting on Leonard Skinner's plane, Aerosmith continues down a path of debauchery. Steven Tyler estimates that he blew through $6 million just putting drugs in his body. We opened up for them, I think, in 77. They were clearly uh, under the influence. They were lucky that they survived that. That used up one or two of their nine lives. Addiction and infighting inevitably result in Aerosmith falling apart briefly in the late 70s. And their relevancy is at an all-time low when producer Rick Rubin proposes an outrageous idea that Aerosmith team with rap group Run DMC. The result becomes the explosive mega mashup, Walk This Way. They didn't know what they were walking into. They did it because they had nothing going on, and they figured, why not? To the people on Aerosmith's side, I'm sure most of them were like, this is, this is crazy. And it wasn't crazy, it was genius. Run DMC paddle shocked Aerosmith back into the limelight and then off they went again. Their popularity dips again in the new century, but Lady Luck once again shines on the band when they lend their image and music to a video game. Stunningly, Guitar Hero is an enormous seller and earns the band more money than any of their previous albums. Their good fortune continues when Steven Tyler joins the judge's desk of American Idol. 
But the band was not happy with him because they were like, dude, we're going to go on tour and we're going to make money. And now you're doing this TV show and went wrong. Yeah. Once again, it ended up being the right decision. And then Joey Kramer battled cancer. You've got Joe Perry that collapsed on stage just a few years ago. Steven Tyler falling off a stage at Sturgis. Aerosmith seemed at every turn to just be able to dodge tragedy. From near tragedy to unexpected comebacks, is the story of Aerosmith about talent or luck? No, Steven Tyler's a talented guy, man. Uh, look, he's a great singer, he's a great songwriter. No, that is not luck. They're survivors. They survived themselves. Go back as far into Aerosmith's music as you want, and it still holds up. The extremes of Aerosmith's good and bad fortunes, which take them from rock to rap. The excesses of Elvis's desires, which take him to the Oval Office. And finally, the influences of Satan himself, who takes all of our music straight to hell. They're all part of music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend.